As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Now, I am the head of the RNC. I've been there for five years. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. Uh, I like what Harmeet Dillon has said. I, for one, don't want to be sitting here twiddling my thumbs while we're, we're 10, 20 years behind the Democrats. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. These norms matter. And Democrats and Republicans have to be very careful when they go down these roads. This is a town of leverage. Every issue has another side to it and votes that you need for something else you're doing. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, this time the new boss is the same as the old boss. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as Republicans vote to keep Ronna McDaniel as chair of the RNC, ending a bitter three-way fight for the gavel. We're joined in a moment by Bloomberg's Mark Niquette, who's at the meeting in California, and we'll talk with party player Saul Anousis on what it means for the future of the GOP. The U.S. Treasury could end the debt ceiling fight today if it just minted a trillion-dollar coin. Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal's pushing the idea. He joins us later about why it should be taken seriously. And as the White House confirms a meeting with Elon Musk, we talk about it all with our signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here for the hour. It wasn't even close today at the Waldorf Hotel in Dana Point, California where members of the Republican National Committee gathered to elect a chair, 168 members to vote, although only 167 did vote, following weeks of bitter campaigning by Harmeet Dillon and uh, Mike Lindell, the, you know, the pillow guy, to unseat Chair Ronna McDaniel. Here's Jeff Kent, the chair of the Rules Committee, with the vote at the podium. Mike Lindell received four votes. Harmeet Dillon received 51 votes, oh. and Ronna McDaniel received 111 votes. 111. Like I said, not even close. So I'm pleased to announce Ronna McDaniel has been elected chairman of the Republican National Committee, and the gavel is yours. There it is. Congratulations. She had the votes after all took the gavel, called the competition, Mike Lindell, who was clearly not happy with the outcome, and Harmeet Dillon. They're all wearing uh, lays up to the podium, and here's Madam Chair. We all have come to the most unanimous decision of unity that we will not sing a song. Um, <laughs> not singing. Um, but no singing. please, please, uh, join. we need all of us. We heard you, Grassroots, we know. We heard Harmeet, we heard Mike Lendell, but with us united and all of us going together, the Democrats are gonna hear us in 2024 when we take back the White House and the Senate. There it is. Okay, everybody sat down, she gave her speech. 
And Mark Niquette was in the room for it, Bloomberg National Politics reporter, who I'm glad to say is with us right now. Uh, it sounds like the membership, I mean, over 110 votes here, Mark, was was pleased with the way the vote worked out here. Was there a gasp in the room? What was the reaction? No, but there, there was expected that she would win, but there was genuine uncertainty about whether she would or what the margin would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, heading into the, the vote, uh, McDaniel said she had well over 100 members endorsing her, but it was a secret ballot, and Harvey Dillon thought, you know, in the privacy of that secret ballot, uh, enough members who even publicly said they supported McDaniel, McDaniel might vote for her because they wanted to see change at the RNC, but obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, uh, and, and there. I guess there was one vote uh, for uh, for Lee Zeldin. Uh, strangely, in 167 in total. How come we didn't have 168? You know, I'm not even sure what happened there because there were 168 votes, either uh, with members or their proxies. Um, but uh, the bottom line is, it just takes a majority of those voting. Yep. Uh, to win these, the speakers win the race, like the speakers race, where we saw you know people voting present to uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, not uh, not voting essentially, so that they can get the, the margin down to get the majority vote. They're still going, right? What's the rest of the rest of the day like? Well, now they're on to electing the other uh, party officers, the RNC co-chair, treasurer, and secretary, and. Um, there's actually a, a big battle for the co-chair race where on the first ballot, uh, no candidate got uh, a majority. So uh, they're in the middle of the second ballot, and there's some thought that it could go on for a while, like like the speaker's race, which, which went to 15 <laughs> ballots. Uh, but I think a lot of members here are hoping it doesn't go to 15 because they have place to get out of California and go back home. All right. I hope the coffee's good, Mark. Thanks for checking in with us. Mark Nicat, Bloomberg National Politics Reporter, always kind to share with us. This firsthand reporting from the field, I love it, as we bring in Saul Anus, his principal and managing partner of Coast to Coast Strategies, and just the man we wanted to talk to with a, with a great sense of what's happening inside the apparatus. He previously served as Michigan Republican Party chair and was a candidate for chairman of the RNC in 2009 and in 2011, so he's been there. Saul, thank you so much for being with us. Um, that was a pretty strong show of support here. Did you expect Ronna McDaniel? Uh, to pull through with such a convincing margin? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, when Rana announced that she had over 100 members that had publicly signed a letter in her support, it, it was very difficult to see how anybody would have a path to change that. Um, you know, it's a very insider's game. Um, she's very good at building relationships, uh, keeping in touch with the members, making sure that they're taken care of, et cetera. And that's the kind of thing that happens in a race like this, which is very much you know, inside baseball, very much uh, people taking care of one another and working together. You know, 168 sounds like a lot of people, but that's a pretty small yeah. group to work with on a regular basis in and out of, you know, party politics. Well, let me ask you, who are these 168 members voting today? Well, what happens is each state basically gets three representatives, including the territories. And so mm-hmm. it is the state chairman of each respective party, as well as one national committee man and one national committee woman elected from each of the states. So the National Committee people serve convention to convention. In other words, they're elected the, the year of the National Convention, but they actually get seated after the previous convention ends and serves to the next convention, where state chairmen are oftentimes elected every two years at their states, which most states um, rotate their chairman out every two years. So th- that those three people from each of the states and the five territories make up your 168 members. Got it. 
One of Ronna McDaniel's sort of closing arguments was that, you know, I, I know Donald Trump and I'll keep him from running on a third party if it comes to that. Is Ronna McDaniel going to be the Trump whisperer still as, as the chair of this party or, or is there a disconnect? No, look, I mean, she has a very unique relationship with the president. Um, you know, the president picked her to be the chairman uh, during his first term. Um, she has somebody that he, I think, trusts and has a relationship with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether, I, I think she can always have influence and share her ideas. And, you know, but the president's obviously his own man. He's going to make his own decisions. But, yeah. uh, you know, she is somebody that will counsel him and give him advice. And, uh, you know, if anybody could help, uh, you know, you know, keep him kind of, uh, you know, within the ranks of the party and, and, and not be disruptive. Uh, you know, I mean, she's got as good or better chance than most other people in the process. So this was a pretty bitter uh, fight, as as was widely publicized here. Was it good for the party to have it out? What's what's sort of left uh, in in the dust as everybody goes home from California? No, I think it's absolutely healthy. I mean, this is the kind of thing, there, there's a lot of frustration in the party, right? I mean, we, we expected to have a much better election year this time around. Um, there's a lot of grassroots that are, you know, frustrated with how things are working and, and how things, you know, uh, come about. And so I think raising these questions is a fair part of the process. I think it's healthy for Rana to have gone through this to get a feel for where some of the frustrations are and gives her some direction as to how she can address, you know, where the party ought to be in the future and where it ought to move. So, you know, it will very quickly come together. Um, but th- this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, helps her get that autopsy going, helps her get the process going and saying, okay, what were some of the things people raised and why, and, and how should we handle them? And so I think Ron is a pro at this. She gets the game as well as anybody. And, um, you know, she's going to learn, use this as an, as a, you know, positive, momentum, so to speak, to kind of pull the party together and, and make some of the changes necessary yeah. to move forward and win. It's all great to talk. I appreciate your time today. Solanusis, Coast to Coast Strategies. As we assemble our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, I'm glad to say with us on a Friday, Bloomberg Politics contributors and our good friends on the fastest hour in politics. Rick, you've been through that meeting a couple of times. Uh, may not be surprised about Rana McDaniel, but I want to bring people back uh, just to uh, a couple of days ago, and, and the way this argument sounded, listen to Harmeet Dillon on the Rubin Report. We have not won, in what I call the definition of winning, in three successive election cycles. I mean, here in California, 2018 was a wipeout. We had a, it was like, we lost half of the delegation. 2020, we lost the White House. Uh, we lost the House. We barely clung to the Senate. 2022, we're barely clinging to the House. Rick, all of that stuff is still true. Does Ronna McDaniel have to do an autopsy here and reform the approach to campaigning? Oh, for sure, right? I mean, it's very unusual for uh, RNC chairman to survive a presidential loss, right? Mm. Normally, that's the first time that... uh, you you clean house uh, because that's a big deal, you know, in the Republican Party, which is very hierarchical. Uh, and and then again to lose in the midterms, you know. And I say lose, I mean, you know, won the house, but not by anybody's uh, expectations. Um, you know, it it's just like double jeopardy. And so the fact that she pulled this off is really quite a miracle. So she's got some running room now. I mean, she survived two near death experiences politically. And uh, and so, yeah, sure. You know, Republicans aren't great at autopsies. Last time we did one, um, 
was under Reince Priebus and and the, the previous chairman, and and yeah. it was focused on broadening the base and bringing in you know uh, minority groups to the Republican cause, and and then pretty much just thrown in the garbage. Really, nobody really did much about it. So uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in it, but sure, I, I don't doubt to make uh, the opposition happy. She's gonna you know sort of make a new plan uh, to be more inclusive. More inclusive, Jeannie, does it help the Biden campaign, the prospective Biden reelection campaign recalibrate? Or is this sort of good news because it, it's it's familiar territory? Yeah, you know, I don't think it has much impact on the Biden campaign. Um, I think it may have had she been defeated and had Dylan with, you know, so many controversial surrogates on her side, um, you know, that seemed to drive some of her support away or diminish some of it, uh, or potential support, I should say. But, you know, I'm not sure it has a real impact on Biden's team long term, because let's face it, these stories, you know, they make a lot of news at the time they happen. But I think in the long term, it's going to sort of die. And it is going to, I think, the one way in which it does impact the race is if you in any way views this as a proxy fight between Trump mm-hmm. and DeSantis. And I do think that's a long. So I'm not sure I would yeah. be convinced about that either. But there are some people looking at it that way. Well, you mentioned Ron DeSantis. And it's funny, you know, he just at the very last minute decided to step into this whole thing. Uh, he he was uh, talking just it was two days ago, I believe, where he he decided to weigh in on the race for chair. Here's the governor of Florida. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. Uh, I like what Harmeet Dillon has said about getting the RNC out of D.C. Why would you want to have your headquarters in the most Democrat city in America? It's more Democrat than San Francisco is. <laughs> OK, on the Charlie uh, Kirk thing, the podcast or show, whatever it is, Rick, did he just shoot himself in the foot, especially if he wants to be the nominee th- this time around. Yeah, I think this was an unforced error. Um, it, it was so late that I don't think it could really have much of an impact. Maybe he believed the spin that, you know, if he weighed in, the secret ballot was going to really shift. Mm-hmm. But um, n- nobody really believed that inside the RNC that I spoke to. So why did he even get in? Why say anything about the yeah. race? Um, so uh, I-, I think this is one of these things where people are going to look at this and go, hmm, maybe he's not as you know, much Teflon uh, governor of Florida as we thought he was, right? And 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 this was a, a judgment mistake. Uh, so I think a lot of Republicans you know, tend to put him up on a pedestal right now. And I think this, this takes that pedestal down a little notch. So is Donald Trump looking pretty good today, Jeannie? Oh, yes. I think in comparison, no, I, I agree with Rick on this. Uh, you know, I am not sure why he decided to, to even enter into this fray. Um, you know, the way I read it, when you listen to the longer form of this with Charlie Kirk, since Charlie yeah. Kirk was such a major supporter of her and a major surrogate, yeah. this was Ron DeSantis sort of, you know, chatting with somebody who likes her saying, you know, there are good things. But it was read as sort of a semi-mild endorsement, if you will, questioning Ron McDaniel. And it is, I think, a political political miscalculation on DeSantis's part. And I think it is going to give some people a little bit of pause about whether he's ready for prime time or not. But I think we're still a long way off from that as well. What does this mean for fundraising, Rick? Ronna McDaniel uh, got a lot of credit for raising a lot of money. Uh, and and that, is, that is something that she's known to be good at. Is that why she keeps the gavel? Yeah, I think that that certainly there's a confidence that that's something she knows how to do. Winning elections, maybe not, but certainly raising money. <laughs> okay. And uh, and so we'll see if this actually helps Trump, because 
certainly he was, you know, she was his puppet during the previous two terms that she served. So, uh, but this is supposed to be a competitive primary. So is she going to put her finger on the balance uh, to help Trump in any way that, you know, the rest of the candidates are really going to be upset about? Yeah. Spending time with our panel, Rick and Jeannie, on a Friday, as we do have news, if you're just joining us, Ronna McDaniel keeps the job uh, as chair of the RNC. What does that mean about all of the uh, the leaks and, and, and the efforts to, to get her out of this thing? Remember, we were talking about this, the, the receipts, Jeannie, for spending on entertainment and alcohol and all this stuff, that she was this completely irresponsible leader. That's just uh, water under the bridge today? Well, I do think that seems to have turned off some of the people who might have supported her opponent. Um, you know, all of those leaks, you know, including apparently leaking some of their contact information online, um, you know, that's forbidden in, in, you know, sort of a family, if you were a dysfunctional family, to say the least at this point. But I do think it's a wake up call for her. That said, I think we should remember Ronna McDaniel, if I'm not mistaken, is now going to be one of the longest serving chairs in the RNC. And I think this is something we're seeing on both sides it almost seems in this day and age losing doesn't seem to get you out you can keep your job if you lose and that is a change we keep with the panel as we turn to 2024 and take a look at the field imagine this we could all be in new hampshire or is it south carolina i don't know in one year that means debates in like six months we'll look at the most recent numbers and survey the field with our panel i'm joe matthew in washington this is bloomberg Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Now that Ronna McDaniel seals the deal to remain chair of the RNC, focus shifts on, well, to who will be the nominee for president. There's only one, of course, declared candidate here to be taken seriously, and that's Donald Trump. But a lot could change here in the next year. And that's basically all we're dealing with 
it's kind of strange when you turn the corner here into that year beforehand, and it's like, wow, we're really almost there. 2024 is on. And we know that Donald Trump is running. The most recent poll that I at least I got my eyes on here was the Harvard Caps Harris poll that they did for the Hill. And it looks pretty darn good for Donald Trump uh, up significantly over Ron DeSantis. As we reassembled our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, these numbers are pretty convincing. 20 points for Donald Trump, 48 percent would back him, 28 percent would support DeSantis. I know it's early, but that's got to be encouraging for someone who's got a relatively quiet campaign at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Donald Trump is the 800 pound gorilla in the Republican Party. Right. And regardless of what the polls say, um, you got to beat him to Mm -hmm. be the nominee. And nobody's done that yet. So uh, it for sure, that's the that's the target. And Donald Trump should be reassured that everybody believes that. And so his the target is on his back. It's not on anybody else's. And uh, but that being said, these are state by state uh, elections. Right. None of these national polls really Hmm. mean anything other than to get a sense of your popularity. And so, you know, uh, when you look at Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida, I mean, you've got a lot of competition for Donald Trump there. I mean, Donald Trump stays very popular in Iowa. But, you know, Sununu, Governor Sununu in New Hampshire is much more popular than Donald Trump if he got into this race. Uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, is incredibly popular in South Carolina, as is Tim Scott, another person who's been talked about as a presidential candidate. And, of course, you go to Florida and I don't know, pick them. You know, who do you like in Florida? (laughs) Well, you know, you got to You got to go with DeSantis. So can Donald Trump be the nominee of the party if he loses three out of the first four election cycles or election contests. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really something to think about. And uh, and yet that's only the beginning. There are other really good candidates in the Republican Party who haven't spoken up. Brian Kemp from Georgia is incredibly well liked. When you ask Republicans, who do you like? Uh, Brian Kemp gets a 90 percent approval rating. Guess what Donald Trump's is? 71 percent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot of work to be done before anybody's uh, crowned uh, nominee of the Republican Party this next cycle. Well, DeSantis outperforms Jeannie when when Donald Trump is taken out of the mix, uh, which is, it's an interesting way of looking at this. You know, he gets 49 percent when you don't have Donald Trump in the field. Uh, and the next uh, in line here is, is Mike Pence at 14 uh, percent. What does that tell you so early in the game? You know, I, I do think an awful lot is in terms of name recognition. Um, and I think that there is a lot of excitement around Ron DeSantis. And he did perform very well in the state of Florida last time around. I think he beat almost everybody's expectations. So, you know, he is a uh, promising in that regard. But, you know, I'm looking at this UNH poll. You have DeSantis beating Trump by 42 to 30. Isn't that something? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I do think when you go on a nationwide poll this early, of course, the person who has declared the only person really should take the cake, right? Because nobody else has said they want to do it. Mm-hmm. But you get them mm-hmm. out and you go to some of these states where people are really paying attention, like New Hampshire, and you see a far different sort of breakdown. And I was also fascinated by some of the reporting out of the New York Times and others in the last couple of days talking to real inside party members who are really looking around for potentially other candidates there and are, you know, exhibiting some signs of ex- exhaustion about Donald Trump. And so, you know, they don't determine the primaries, obviously, but they do have some sway on that. When we try to look at the the 
president's approval ratings. I guess that's the ultimate national poll, Rick. Gallup's got him at 41 approval, 54 disapprove. Can we can we sort of get anything out of that in terms or can you can you help us put that in context in terms of where he would stand if he did announce now? Yeah, you know, look, I mean, you really look at the reelect number. Uh, it tends to track job approval. So it's going to be in that sort of area. And it's yep. not great. Right. I mean, like incumbents want to be higher than that. They they want to be closer to 50 percent. And mm-hmm. and 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 yet um, uh, you can't count out Joe. Uh, he's uh, he's a resilient politician uh, and, and hasn't made his case to the American voters yet, except that every day he's graded as president. So so what is unique about a president is he really campaigns at the whim of the economy, international events, you know, the performance of his cabinet. Uh, he has a, a much more complex campaign to run than anybody running against him who basically looks at him and says, well, we're just going to be the other guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, so whether or not Biden and his team are up for that challenge uh, will be interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how long he waits before he becomes an announced candidate. And I'll be honest, uh, in most election cycles, you pretty much have a pretty good sense by now uh, in the cycle of who the likely contestants will be. And I would say this sounds like a, a campaign where, where uh, even though Donald Trump's an announced candidate, I, I think uh, there are many other Republicans and potentially Democrats who are yet to announce who probably will. So I think we'll be into you know February, March and April by the time we have a sense of what this field's going to look like. You mentioned a, a couple of important names, Haley and Sununu. Nikki Haley actually uh, doesn't register, I think, uh, or I should say uh, Chris Sununu doesn't register in this Hill survey. But Nikki Haley ties for fourth place at 3%. Uh, Jeannie, the UNH poll you mentioned has her at 8 Is she a sleeper candidate here? You know, she very well might be. I mean, she does have the benefit of being from South Carolina, and that is an important state. She has the benefit of having served in a variety of offices. She has a benefit of being very well liked. I mean, she's got a lot of things going for her. It certainly will be an uphill battle. And I think that's, you know, one of the questions I have is how long can these people wait to contest formally Trump and say they're putting their hat in the ring because Mm -hmm. they have to raise enormous amounts of money to make a go at this thing. So there's going to come a point at which they're going to have to either be in or out in terms of fundraising. And so somebody like Nikki Haley, who she's got to start, but she's got a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, space to make up there. She's going to have to get in, um, I would think, sooner rather than later. But, you know, who wants to take on Trump in this direct way, I think is going to be the big question. And that's the other thing is that, if you know if there are more candidates that is going to make it easier for Donald Trump because he does have a base of like 30 percent or so who look like they'll be with him regardless the more people in this race the better Mm -hmm. off he will be but if it's a head-to-head he's going to have a harder time you mentioned that autopsy that the Republican Party did a few years back under Ryan's Priebus Rick Uh, Nikki Haley would fulfill a lot of the, the the desires that came from it in terms of widening the tent as a person of color, having a woman uh, be the nominee. She has a pretty powerful story to tell. Yeah, she's a compelling uh, candidate. Uh, I would remind uh, everybody that she hasn't been on a ballot in a long time. That's true. And, and so when you haven't been in the game, uh, you run the risk of uh, not being sharp. Uh, and this is a performance hmm. 
uh, contest, right? You've got to be really good at what you do. We saw that with Jeb Bush, right? He hadn't been on the ballot for 10 years, yeah. you know, decided to run for president 16. Everyone thought, oh my God, it's got to be Jeb. Jeb, you know, he's son of the president. I mean, brother of the president. I mean, you can't get a better deal for Republicans. And it was, and he bombed right. um, because he really wasn't ready. He hadn't got the, the skill set at that time. So, um, so I think that uh, Nikki's got a lot to prove to people who haven't seen her on a ballot in a long time. And I think one of the things Jeannie mentioned, which is really critical for her, is can't she put the money together? We know Donald Trump can raise an enormous amount of money. We know that Ron DeSantis can also follow suit and raise just as much. The, the contest now is going to be can Nikki Haley, can you know Mike Pence, uh, can Brian Kemp. I mean, these guys are going to have to compete with campaigns that are going to have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. Mike Pompeo hasn't come up yet. Are we underestimating that potential, Jeannie? You know, uh, got I got zero in that UNH poll. You know, I, I think Ma- Mike Pompeo has a hard road ahead of him. Um, you know, when, when Rick's talking about being on the ballot, um, you know, really, literally, when is the last time Mike Pompeo has been on the ballot? He also comes, I think, with some baggage, which makes it hard. Um, that's not to say he can't do it, but he would have to make up, in my mind, a good amount of ground mm-hmm. to move forward to the top of a pack like this. But again, if we see you know, 16, 20, 22 candidates in this thing, you know, some polling one to two and some <laughs> yeah. polling six to 10. That helps Donald Trump. And that is what the Democrats are hoping happens once again. And so I think this is where the leadership of the Republican Party is going to be critical. Can they get a head to head where somebody can get coalesce that's kind of anti-Trump or, you know, moving into a new future for the Republican Party, even mm-hmm. if it's not anti-Trump and put together a winning coalition that can beat him in these primaries it's not going to be easy yeah well i suspect that some of these names are going to bubble much closer to the surface once they potentially get some name recognition because it's so early in the game here great conversation with rick and Jeannie. we'll be back with the idea of a trillion dollar coin you want to end the debt limit situation today it would actually be possible joe weisenthal has been writing about it and he's going to join us next from the odd lots podcast the stalwart ahead on sound on success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's dedication it's fortitude and it's the work passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition that's what stiefel has been doing for over 130 years and it's why stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country and stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So it's back to the trillion dollar coin debate. Remember from when they had to raise the debt ceiling a couple years ago? Some suggested the president simply mint a trillion dollar platinum coin and get on with life. Well, that idea is back, of course, as we debate the debt ceiling again, and there's no clear path. Uh, Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal likes this idea more than ever. I've been watching his tweets, and not everyone agrees. And I wanted to talk to him about his side of this argument here. Joe, uh, welcome back to your safe space here on Sound On. <laughs> Sounds good. I've been watching you on Twitter. Uh, you can talk about the trillion-dollar coin all you want Thank here. You. No criticism. In fact, Thank I'm here you. to learn from you. Thank you. And our finally listeners a, might remember. a safe space for coin talk. Yeah, that's, where, that's my goal here. Um, it's not a new idea. It's not a new fascination yeah. for the stalwart. Bringing us That's back right. to the last debt ceiling battle. This is October 21. Janet Yellen was asked about it by George Stephanopoulos on ABC This Week. The trillion-dollar coin. What say you, Madam Secretary? Well, I wouldn't be supportive of a trillion-dollar coin. I think it's a oh. gimmick, and um, it jeopardizes the independence of the Federal Reserve. You would be asking to essentially print money to cover the deficit. This is a responsibility. It's a shared bipartisan responsibility. A gimmick, Joe? I mean, look, so I've been obsessed with this story for 12 years now, really since the 2011 debt ceiling fight, Yeah, which was the first sort of like kind of the modern era of debt ceiling politics where people really started to worry that that it's not going to get raised, Mm -hmm. uh, triggering the risk of a default. And there is this statute in the law that says that under the Treasury Secretary's uh, discretion that uh, a, a coin of any denomination, any denomination provided its platinum and provided its proof quality, meaning shiny, uh, can be uh, can be minted. And so the idea is, uh, well, you know, look, if you run out of borrowing authority, which is what the debt ceiling means, and you still have obligations to meet your spending authority because yeah. the Congress has also passed a budget, what do you do? Uh, rather than default, you could mint this coin, say, put a, tr- a trillion dollars on it, write the word one trillion, deposit it at the Treasury's account at the New York Fed with the Treasury General account. Mm-hmm. And now you have a trillion dollars in there that you can then uh, spend. And the law looks pretty unambiguous to me. Is it a gimmick? Yeah, of course, writing a trillion on a coin. But on the other hand, you know, the idea that we would have this like sort of fic- fiction called the debt ceiling right. in which we arbitrarily threaten publicly is like, wait, we might default on our obligations is also pretty silly. And so it's like, OK, here's this silly thing that exists. It can be solved with those other silly things that exist. And no one really likes to do silly things when it comes to the U.S. government. But if the alternative is a default. Most people think that would be pretty bad because the history of defaults, whether it's yeah. Lehman Brothers in 2008 Not or Russia good. in 1998 or things like that, tend to be pretty bad. If the prospect is you're defaulting on the uh, the largest liquid uh, fixed income asset class in the entire world that the entire world considers to be the definition of safety, Ugh. that 
Maybe it's okay to use a gimmick in that case because yeah. the alternative is so catastrophic. Yeah, maybe we warm up to the idea of a gimmick. Yeah, uh, it's like, come on. It's like, you know, <laughs> look, I don't want to like do silly things either. I want to have a serious government that operates. But, like, you know, I was just in a conversation with the other day. It's like, okay, if, like, if it's a choice between going over a cliff in the Grand Canyon or pressing a <laughs> silly button, yeah. why is this so hard? Right, since it's a self-imposed debt ceiling yeah. to begin with. Right, like why? Like, Some would suggest it is a gimmick. Yeah, and so, look, like you could say... Like oh the debt ceiling like if you're if you're gonna really insist that the debt ceiling is this sort of like you know catastrophic apocalyptic moment right mm-hmm. where if you don't raise it something very bad happens how can you totally dismiss the idea of using right. gimmicks as a way to avoid that catastrophe you know when you listen to that answer from Janet Yellen remembering she's a former uh, yeah. Fed chair. Her, her basically her argument was two things. One, hey, yeah. don't just look at us. There's right. other people here to fix this too. We got to do it together, teamwork. Yeah, uh, which is a little bit of a laugh with what we're hearing right now. But of course, that was back in 21. Right. But also, it would somehow compromise the authority of the I've Fed. Never, what do you so, make of that? I, I don't. I don't get that. Now, let me say two things about her answer because she was also interviewed about a week ago by the Wall Street Journal, and she basically said the same thing. And she said, "I don't know if the Fed would even accept a deposit." Of the coin, so here's all, I'll say. There's two <laughs> Can't interesting. Can't make a phone things. call on that. Yeah. So I say there's two. <laughs> I say there's two interesting things about her answer to me. One is, it's notable she actually has not said it's illegal. Because she could say, like, if someone asked her about the trillion dollar coin, she's like, what are you talking about? Of course, we can't just stamp a trillion dollars on the platinum disc and say it's illegal. So I think it's notable that she never actually says that. Mm. And what that what that means to me, and I'm just speculating here, is that you know. In some contingencies, some lawyers at the Treasury say, actually, this might be legal, and they don't want to be on record as saying it's illegal in case they actually have to do it at some point. So that's, But then the other thing, I don't get this view about compromise the independence of the Fed, and here's why. When we talk about Fed independence, what do we mean by that value? The value that we're trying to express is that the decision to lower and raise interest rates is a process a process that exists outside of normal elected officials. And there might be good reasons for that process to exist outside of elected officials, presumably because no one, you know, wants to say vote to hike interest rates. Mm-hmm. Do people want to vote to hike your mortgage? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Do people want to vote to slow down the labor market? Probably not. And, uh, you know, so if you if there uh, it might make sense to have some of these policy choices exist outside of the direct realm of elected officials. And okay, we can debate that, but that makes sense. Nothing about the coin precludes that Mm -hmm. because you could deposit the trillion dollar coin. But if the Fed feels it needs to hike another 100 basis points because of inflation that exists in the economy, nothing about the existence of a coin on its balance sheet precludes that possibility. If the Fed wanted to say, you know, they could sell the Fed has trillions of dollars on its balance sheet of treasuries. If it wanted to hold the size of its balance sheet stable, it could sell a trillion dollars of its holdings of treasuries into the market so that its balance sheet remains the same size. So to the extent that Fed independence is something that we believe is important and has a high value, it does not, like in the way that we should understand that term, Fed independence, it does not make sense to me, the idea that, okay, suddenly they have this coin that exists in their vault somewhere, maybe at the New York Fed, that somehow that becomes a problem for its ability to exercise monetary policy in an independent, non-political manner. Phew. Yeah, and we're not even talking politics here because right. people would freak out if this, you know, I don't know what that would mean for Joe Biden's potential second term. But the the the, the last big question I have for you is, well, what do we put on the coin? Oh, <laughs> you know, my vote 
I've heard many many suggestions. So Philip Deal is the thirty fifth uh, was the thirty fifth director of the U.S. Mint, <laughs> and he was the one that helped craft the legislation in the mid nineties. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, in the mid nineties, uh, to, uh, that enabled the coin. So I, but you know, in addition to having written this, uh, helping drafted this legislation, he's also kind of a visionary. He was actually like talking about the need for the mint to think about uh, digital money, like 20 years. You've really thought this going. through. This is your answer. Yeah. So I think, uh, and, uh, he's, he modernized the mint. He was the one that spearheaded the 50 state quarter project yes remember right that massive uh success highly successful so, so, uh and he's also a, a bipartisan figure so he was a democrat but he also worked well with republicans and he takes pride in that he worked with uh mike castle to draft the legislation a republican from delaware <laughs> and philip deal says yeah of course uh the law he's like i wrote the law and so the tro- he's supportive of the trillion dollar coin idea so yeah. i would say he would be a good figure he, he would be a, a savior you know he his idea saved the country from default So let's put him on the coin. I love this. I love talking to someone who believes in what they're saying. Yeah, I take this. You know, like, look, I'm a journalist, you know, like you are. And so, you know, we're not, but this is like one topic I really believe in. Absolutely. I I find it difficult to remain neutral when the coin comes up. Joe Weisenthal, always a great pleasure. He co-hosts, of course, the famous Odd Lots podcast for us here at Bloomberg, and we love comparing notes with joe we need to do this like a regular friday thing uh i'm not going to pull the panel into a debate on the trillion dollar coin rick davis and Jeannie shanzano are of course with us here on sound on but Jeannie, the fact that we're having this conversation again tells us everything about the state of affairs in washington right Oh, it really does. And I was looking back at Barack Obama. He said when they discussed it back in the day, 2011, yeah. <laughs> he said it was like something out of the Stone Age. And he pictured somebody rolling in some big coin. And I mean, I could, Joe was just making me laugh your whole conversation because he's absolutely right. The gimmicks, this is all gimmicky. It is all theater. There's no such thing as a debt ceiling, although there is. So why can't you roll in a coin from the Stone Age? I'm not sure there's a good answer to that at this point. Well, look, the story is always a big hit on social media it's a big i mean you can read all about it on the terminal rick everyone's got a an opinion has anyone in washington seriously considered it no uh, i don't think this is something anybody <laughs> wants to put their stamp on so to speak um and and what would coin sale i like like his approach what a deal right i mean <laughs> right. Like, you know, with a question mark uh, one trillion dollars um no i think anybody who uh would consider it would realize that uh, by the time the court challenges uh, occurred. Uh, we'd already be in default, and uh, we've got bigger problems than you know who to put on a coin that's worth a trillion dollars. So uh, I, I, I don't think this is likely to uh, make its way into the administration's decision making. Uh, and if anything, you know, the last thing you want to do is give people an out where uh, oh, we don't have to negotiate with Congress on this mm-hmm. because we can just mint a coin. I think we got to keep pressure on Congress to come up with their plan and get a negotiation with the administration and get this done like uh, adults. But I must say, um, I would I would volunteer to be on a trillion dollar coin only if I got a copy. of <laughs> Right. Yeah, I like the idea of that. You know, you're rolling it into the room like that, uh, Jeannie. I think that would be just a, just great optics for a news conference. Uh, Joe seems to think they're keeping this in their pocket. You know, it's. It's two days before, it's the night before, we're about to default and they pull this thing out. But is it just a gimmick? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm just picturing, I don't know, Janet Yellen, Joe Biden hanging onto this coin as it's rolling into the White House <laughs> briefing room. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's... It, 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 
Barack Obama did say they seriously kept it in their pocket. We heard, you know, we heard from the press secretary say everything's on the table. We have many Democrats and Republicans pushing for this. But I think it just tells us in the long term how far we have fallen in this country that we can't simply just raise the debt ceiling, pay our debts and have a conversation about rational spending, which is, to Rick's point, exactly what should be happening in Congress with the executive branch. (laughs) You and your rational thought, Jeannie Shanzano (laughs) and Rick Davis, back with some final thoughts. So Elon Musk tweets, just met with Speaker McCarthy and Rep. Jeffries to discuss ensuring that this platform is fair to both parties. You know, he showed up on Capitol Hill, but we learned more today that he actually also met with uh, members of the administration. Here's Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary at the White House. So I can I can confirm that uh, that uh, Mitch Landrieu and also John Podesta met with Elon Musk to discuss uh, electrification and how the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act can advance EVs and increase the electrifications more broadly. Uh, so that meeting did happen uh, today, and so for sure I can I can confirm that to all of you. Mark, a turning of the page of the relationship between this White House and Elon Musk. Um, I will say that I think the uh, the outreach and the meeting says a lot of how important the president thinks the bipartisan infrastructure legislation is and how the Inflation Reduction Act is, especially as we it relates to uh, EVs and, and his commitment. And so I, I will leave it there. Nothing like a couple guys hanging around talking about electrification. That's how we're going to frame this genie after he was not invited to any of the EV car events. When Mary Barra and others were on the South Lawn, a major co their cars are being filmed by every news organization. What's changing? Yeah, a sign of thawing tensions. You know, I, I, I think the Democrats may have forgiven, forgiven him for saying it's a party of hate and asking his Twitter followers to vote Republican. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I do think an awful lot of this has to do with the Biden administration's insistence and focus on getting the infrastructure bill uh, moving, obviously moving that forward. And so we're seeing some of that here. But, you know, it seems that Hakeem Jeffries may not be as forgiving since he said, no, there was no plan meeting with me so you know i think he's got elon musk has some work to do on the democratic side at this point what does this tell you about the administration here is it gearing up for re-election mode why why spend the time and (laughs) rick were they really talking about electrification yeah probably i mean look it's a legitimate problem uh tesla uh, electric charges don't work with other cars uh the white house is uh, sitting on a plan that uh mitch landrew is implementing along with John Podesta, to install Mm -hmm. 500,000 electric uh, car chargers around the country. Uh, You know, uh, you got to figure out how you're going to fit that um, that Tesla charger into that plan. And uh, uh, I'm not sure there's a good solution to that. So there's a good reason to have that conversation uh, if we're going to really be serious about the distribution of electric vehicles around the country. But they have to invite him next time, right? Well, optics matter. I mean, like, notice he didn't meet at the White House with these two cats. They went over to the Tesla office. They were at the Tesla Um, D.C. office. And so I think that matters. Right. I mean, he I would say my read on this is he's still persona non grata inside the White House. (laughs) uh, And yet there are things that they have to deal with him on. So they're they're not going to give him benefit of walking through the uh, uh, gates at uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. They're going to they're going to go over there and maybe check out the new uh, plaid model at the Tesla factory there and, uh, <laughs> and have a meeting with them. 
Well, he wasn't strutting around the Capitol yesterday either when he went to meet with the new Speaker of the House. Listen to Kevin McCarthy emerging from what was apparently his sit-down uh, meeting with Elon Musk. All the reporters are getting him in the hallway here. What did you do to Mr. Musk discuss? Huh? What did you do to Mr. Musk discuss? He came to wish me happy birthday, uh, Jeannie. What was he talking about with the speaker? You think that this really was a Twitter chat? Uh, it, it, I would imagine a Twitter chat or it had to do with Tesla again. Um, but, you know, a, again, it was Hakeem Jeffries who came out publicly and said, you know, Elon Musk tweeted that he met with both of them. And I was surprised that Hakeem Jeffries camp said no such doing. We bumped into Wacky. each other. Nothing was planned. So, again, huh. there is some tension there and it's hard to know exactly what he met with McCarthy about. I have my suspicions it wasn't only to wish Kevin McCarthy a happy birthday, although we all wish him a happy birthday. <laughs> I can't imagine that was Elon Musk's top on the top of his agenda. Well, you know, look, I, I don't know, though. They could be political allies in a number of different ways uh, over the next two years here. Rick, no? Oh, they have been. I think you can assume that uh, that's going to continue. Elon Musk was a major contributor to uh, Kevin McCarthy's efforts to regain the House of Representatives. This was kind of a victory lap for for uh, for uh, Musk because uh, he really wanted those Republicans in charge of those committees. I mean, uh, uh, his uh, platform, whether it's Tesla, SpaceX, or 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 uh, 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 Twitter, is, are yeah. going to be under enormous assault by Congress uh, this year. And he needs all the friends he can get. And yeah. having the friend as a speaker is not a bad deal. We're going to see more of him in D.C. over the year ahead, just like Rick and Jeannie. The best panel in the business. I'm Joe Matthew. See you next week. This is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.